welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So sometime in the mid-200s A.D., a strange phenomenon started happening. I mean, historians aren't exactly sure of date, location, but a few generations after the time of the apostles, you started to have individuals, Christians, mainly in the Middle Eastern region in North, North Africa, go off into the desert to live a life of solitude. The first of these desert fathers, as we call them now, that we we know about is St. Anthony of the Desert or St. Anthony of Egypt. Um, We know a lot about St. Anthony because St. Anthanasius had written a biography of him. Actually, interestingly, the biography of St. Anthony is mentioned by St. Augustine in his confessions as being integral in his conversion to Christianity. But St. Anthony was a man who was very wealthy from birth. And when he converted to Christianity, he picked up and read Jesus' instructions to the rich young ruler to go and sell all of his goods and give it to the poor. So St. Anthony took what Jesus said, took him at his word, and got rid of all of his possessions and moved off to live in isolation in the desert, to pray, to fast, and to read. And St. Anthony and and many who followed after him, these desert fathers, they, they sought to escape all comfort, to escape all temptation, to pursue holiness and a singular devotion to God in prayer and fasting and meditation and study. My personal favorite of the desert fathers is St. Simeon the Stylite. I joke with my family that I want, I want to make him our, our family's patron saint. I don't know how you do that, like if there's official, official documentation that is needed, but I want to make him our family's patron saint because I love, he's so out there that you would assume that it's all legend, but there are so many firsthand accounts about St. Simeon that most scholars actually think that most of the stories are actually true. He was from northern Syria in the late 4th in early 5th centuries. He joined a monastery at 16, but his extreme asceticism began to get him ridicule from the other monks. And you know you've got to be pretty bad whenever you are like so hardcore in your devotion that then the other monks are starting to shame you because you're too intense. And so he got pushed out of the monastery and decided that he was going to go live in a cave in a cliff. And he spent his time there reading, praying, fasting. He had actually built himself up to the point where he would, where he began every Lent fasting from all food and drink 
during the period of Lent. I don't recommend it this year during Lent to try to do that. You will die. But he became quite famous and got a lot of notoriety. So people started flocking out to his cave to receive prayers, to receive teaching and instruction. And all these people irritated St. Simeon. And so he went further out into the desert to try to get away from the people, and the people still followed him. So then what he did was he built a nine-foot-tall pillar with a platform, climbed up onto the platform, and lived there 24-7 in the open air on a platform. He had servants that would come every so often. He would lower a basket with a rope and bring up food and drink for himself or manuscripts that he would want to read. Of course, people discovered St. Simeon's pillar. So in the middle of the night, he snuck away and he built a bigger pillar. (laughs) And he actually did this multiple times. Eventually, he had a 50-foot high pillar with a platform on it. The problem is, is that eventually somebody built a 50-foot high ladder so people could climb up to St. Simeon and get his advice. But you see this, this drive to try to get away, to be with God, to be in isolation, to pursue true holiness. And there's something noble about that. Taking seriously Jesus' call to righteousness and devotion there's also something in this that is missing the mark. And actually, it's interesting, many of the desert fathers, after years in isolation, in one way or another, wrote and recognized that running away, walling yourself off in isolation, does not free you from evil. For they discovered in their isolation that the evil was within their own heart. And so as we continue the the lectionary readings through the Sermon on the Mount and hit this passage that is part of the reason why I love and hate the lectionary. Because I love the lectionary because it makes you preach on passages that you would not normally want to preach on. And I hate the lectionary because it forces you to preach on passages that you normally would not want to preach on. And this is one of those hard passages. But as we look at this, I think there's two dangers that often we fall into when we approach this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. The first is to laugh at these ancient Middle Eastern desert monastics. Like, just completely rejecting their desire to take Jesus' teaching, his instruction, his warnings about sin, rejecting that monastic desire to take it deeply seriously. But then the second is to miss what Jesus is doing here and adopt a new asceticism. We might not run off to a cave in the desert because we don't have a desert and we don't have caves. And there's really, there might be zoning codes against the 50-foot pillar, but we might find our own way of walling ourselves off. Using Jesus' teachings so that we can put up enough barriers that then we might be able to be holy.
putting up barriers that never would produce righteousness. And do not wall us off from evil, but do wall us off from the world in which Jesus has come to redeem. And so for, for this Sunday, I, I don't have time to go through each of these portions to break down culturally and understanding how, what is meant within each of these. I actually think that maybe someday in the future, we might just do a series through the Sermon on the Mount because it's important to be able to break these things down. But for this Sunday, what I want to do is just look more broadly at what Jesus is doing here particularly with this command with regard to anger and murder and adultery and lust. And then make mention of his inclusion of making vows and how that in some way ties it all together. So a few points on what Jesus is doing here with the law. The first thing is that Jesus is not replacing the law with a new law. And he's not actually intensifying the law per se. But he is shedding light on the reality toward which the law points. The ultimate issue the law reveals. If you guys remember last week, we talked about how Jesus said that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That he is the reality towards which the law was pointing all along. And in the same way... He is speaking of now working through what this is doing, how the law is actually fulfilled, what it is actually directing and pointing towards. And also last week, his discussion on the law and righteousness is tied to the reality of inheriting the kingdom, that this idea of the kingdom coming. And so in many ways, he is speaking of a greater kingdom ethic that the law points towards but could never have fulfilled. And as you look at it, that's the problem with the law. It can never actually deal with the real issues. Because the law can address and mitigate the effects of hate. Control and subdue certain actions. But the law can never remove hate. And you can never legislate what's in a man's heart. I mean, the same is true with lust, greed, envy, any of those type of things. And if you notice that what Jesus is revealing in this is that the kingdom of God's reign, in which we will be as Christ is, like we talked about last week, is not about action modification, but a perfection of desire. And so I want to make a note because there's different ways that this passage has been used and is often used, but one of the ways that is common in, in certain contemporary segments is to treat Jesus kind of like a youth pastor at an evangelistic conference. In which Jesus is just, you know, turning up the heat to just get you to raise your hand and pray a prayer. It's not necessarily what he's doing here. He's actually speaking of a reality for which we were created for and that we are called 
to live into. It's not just mere hyperbole, but a reality that by grace will be actualized in the kingdom. Secondly, Jesus internalizes the law. As I said, the issues are not actions because the actions are just merely symptoms of a deeper issue. And if you notice, anytime you go into a legalistic religious structure, their legalism always focuses on external actions. On moral modification based upon what one does. But see, the problem is, is that it's not that we have just bad habits and do bad things. But that scripture says we have a corrupted will and a corrupted heart. Like I mentioned last week, Deuteronomy 30, after God had given the fullness of the law, he reminds them that they will not keep it. They will be exiled. And then he promises that he will come after them. And then he will give them a new heart. And then they will love him. And then they will be able to keep the law. The prophet Ezekiel promised the same thing. That one day God would come and turn our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And then we will be righteous. Jesus' summary of the law, if you, he, he, he summarizes the fullness of the law with affection. To love the Lord your God. To love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, if you loved me, you would keep my commandments. That's not like a sarcastic, like backhanded statement that sometimes like parents make where it's just like, you know what? If you really loved me, then you would eat your you know, broccoli. Like, you know, I mean, he's, he's, what he's saying is something deeply, deeply anthropological about our nature where, where he's saying is once you loved me, once your love is perfected, your obedience would follow. He's the one who accused the Pharisees as being whitewashed tombs making themselves look really pretty and pious on the outside, but nothing but death on the inside. And he's the one who said, you must clean the inside of the cup first, and then the outside would follow. Because see, the reality is, is you can always clean the outside without, with the inside remaining corrupt, but you cannot clean the inside without the externals following behind. You can go from being an immoral criminal to a super pious religious person and do both of those things for the exact same motivations. I remember whenever I had 
was pastoring in Pittsburgh, and I had a number of a few individuals who were members of the Nation of Islam, and in my conversations with them, and one who had then became a Christian in, in our church, and as I was talking with him, is that he said the difference was that when he was in prison, he, the Nation of Islam gave him something to clean up his act. He got off drugs. He, he got his act together. He, he, he became moral, but he still had the same hate in his heart. See, you can modify your actions, and that will not change anything on the inside. But whenever your affections are changed, your actions will always eventually follow. And so you see, the issue is within, it's not outside of us. Completely countering the desert fathers. Like I said, many of them recognize this truth after years in isolation, trying to seek purity and holiness by removing all external temptations. There's a phrase that is commonly said and used in AA that I think is, is humorous and invaluable, where it says, every, where I say, every morning I wake up and see the enemy looking back at me, and then I shave his face and wash it. And that's the challenge. Because our common response to the law, the common response to even this passage, is to build even bigger walls around us so that then we can protect ourselves from temptation and then we might be pure. The passage that is kind of gruesome and hard to read and understand and don't have time to get deeply into it, but the whole gouging out of the eye and cutting off of the hand. What is so interesting to me is that most of the times when I hear that taught, we take this passage that is talking about the internal reality of our issue and sin, and then we see that and say, okay, what are the things you need to cut out of your life? Who are the people you need to get rid of? What are the temptations you need to remove? All external things. Guess what? Your hand is not external. Your eye is not external. Jesus is saying is that the issue with the sin is not the thing that is you're sinning after, but the sin that is within you. It's cutting off portions of you. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, it's not what goes into a man, but what comes out of him that makes him unclean. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't steer clear from temptation. But temptation only has power because of something that already exists within us. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin because there was no sin within him. It doesn't mean that we flippantly embrace that which incites sin within us, but it does mean that we recognize that avoiding temptation is not the same thing as dealing with the deeper reality that that temptation elicits. It's one thing as an alcoholic to say, I cannot go to a bar. It's another thing to think that you, that, that you now are okay and the only issue is the alcohol. 
And once that's removed, and once we ban that, then I'll be holy. And finally, the last one is even though the law is internalized, nevertheless, you notice that Jesus turns righteousness not into a personalized piety, but in relationship to community. His emphasis is on treatment, our disposition toward and reconciliation with others. Hate and anger towards the other. Saying, you fool, which sounds odd that, you know, it's like, you who say, you fool, you're going to hell. Like, that seems harsh. But you fool is a bad translation. It actually is a swear word in Aramaic that means, like, to damn someone to hell, to have that type of hate towards another. Notice when he talks about bringing your gift to the altar, if there is not reconciliation, if there is animosity between you and a brother, he says, put off your religious requirements and devotion because reconciliation with your brother is way more important than liturgy and all of your piety and all of the other religious stuff. Lust and adultery is an objectifying of another person. Using them, harming them for your own pleasure. Next week we see he continues on to talk about retaliation with your enemy. Loving your enemy. See, that's where the Desert Fathers missed it. Is that it's all about the kingdom community that the law pointed toward but could not create. But it's all about community. Personal piety is a sham. Because there is no true piety without community. It's in this jacked up mess of conglomeration of sinful, broken people through which we have to learn to actually trust the gospel. Because when I'm alone and in isolation, I can feel good about myself. But when Sam irritates the heck out of me, now all of a sudden, I have to show him grace because of the gospel. That never happens. But it's in this context of community towards one another that the gospel fleshes out, plays out, and refines and forms us into that reality that Jesus is calling us to. As Americans, this is challenging because we are the most individualistic culture that has ever existed in human society. And I'm not just saying that just as throwing it out there, but most sociologists that recognize and acknowledge it. And it doesn't help that many have been hurt and have issues with the church. And I, I feel it. And I agree with a lot of the attacks and accusations that I have heard against the church. Others just feel no need for the church, partially because we've taught a form of Christianity that says that it's all about you and Jesus and not about 
being redeemed as a community. And yet, it is only in the awkward community of the redeemed that we can live into the kingdom ethic that Jesus is saying that all the law pointed towards. How is the law fulfilled? Jesus could have just said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And that would play out in that way, but he also included the love your neighbor as yourself. St. John says that you can't claim to love God and hate your neighbor. It's because the love of God and love of neighbor can't be separated. And it is in the context of neighbor and community that we grow in our love for God and grow in our love for each other. And it all is intertwined and works out. So finally, just a statement, just because I didn't want to just jump over it, is, is this, then he jumps into swearing oaths, which might seem odd, but it actually pulls it together because he is calling for a righteousness that is not just tied to, to, to pageantry of actions and falling in line but authenticity, a holistic unity within the self. That you say what you mean, and you mean what you say. That you don't need to go and seem so pious by saying, I will follow my Lord, and I swear by blah, blah. He's saying, stop it. Just say yes, Lord. And that's good enough. And the conclusion of this, which will be next week, and I don't want to rob from the sermon next week, but he concludes all of this by something that is even harder to swallow, where he says that we must be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And what's hard is, like I said, this is not just some evangelistic technique to get you to, you know, walk down the Romans road. This is a command and a reality. That we are being called to. But it's also a reality that is being brought about by Christ through grace. As we talked about last week. So it's not whether we need to take Jesus's words seriously, but asking the question of how one lives into these things. The common approach in all of this is to create a new external law. It sadly does the opposite of what Jesus is doing in his instruction. Whether it's the second and third or third and fourth century desert fathers whether it's the Protestant piety movements or just clamoring for new external rules that we can pull out of what Jesus was teaching. And we go there so quick. Isn't it interesting that this passage is never used to dissect and determine at what point someone has committed hate in their heart and then creating a legal, legal situation in which then we can determine whether or not their anger was legit or not legit and then they can be either part of the church or not part of the church. But then his discussion on divorce has become a new legal document in which every believer is now a lawyer that can decipher down every point. 
The response is not to find new ways for behavior modification to extrapolate out of this, but to allow it to pierce even more deeply into our own hearts and the realities that lay behind the sin that is within all of us. Remember, as I said at the beginning, both extremes are wrong in some ways. Both are also right in some ways. Like the monastics, we need to take seriously Jesus' internalizing and communalizing of the law. Revealing the true holistic righteousness the law pointed toward but could not produce. To take seriously that Jesus' call to perfection is not hyperbole, but reality that we are called to live into. But we also, like the second group, need to realize that no matter how pious we can make ourselves appear, our corruption runs far too deep. We are at the mercy of another, and we have no hope without grace. It's hard. Kind of make you feel queasy. But you can make external surgeries to yourself. If you've got a cut, you can suture yourself up. Here are extreme stories. People hiking who are trapped who will amputate their own leg. Or a hand. We, you can do the external modifications that you need to do to possibly try to heal you. But you can't perform heart surgery on yourself. It's impossible. You just can't do it. But thanks be to God that the one who gave the law and its commands is also the one who promised that by grace he would perform the heart surgery that we desperately need. By grace through faith, we are saved. Not just from the consequences of sin, but he says from sin and its effects upon us. Praise God that one day we will be perfect as he is perfect. That we will live into the righteousness that he commands because it is by his grace that we will be made able to do so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons, and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue